Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of Plant Yourself, Well Start Health and Sick to Fit. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a perspicacious and passionate life. So Brad Stolberg returned to the podcast to discuss his latest book, The Passion Paradox, co-written with Steve Magnus. And they wrote the book mostly for themselves, which is, I think, how a lot of great self-help books begin. And basically, they had learned a lot of weird and contradictory lessons about passion and how to harness and incorporate it into their lives. Like, on the one hand, we're supposed to follow our passion. On the other hand, we're supposed to live a balanced life. And guess what? You can either have a passionate life or a balanced one at any point in time. So... Which do you choose? How do you choose? And how do you not go crazy choosing? The other piece of advice they wrestled with in the book was find your passion. And there's nothing wrong with that piece of advice, except that it's usually given as the punchline, the end of the story. OK, find your passion and everything will be OK. And they point out, and we all know, people who have found their passion and then went on to destroy their lives and be miserable, whether through burnout or cheating to stay on top or feeling the pressure and succumbing to it in some way. So they spend a lot of time exploring the question, once you have a passion, how do you ride it so that it gives you the life you want? I began the conversation by asking Brad about the kind of passion that many of us, you and I and other listeners of this podcast, feel about promoting our own version of a healthy lifestyle to the people around us, whether it's ethical veganism or plant based living or running or the environmental impact of our choices on the world, that we care deeply about this stuff. And some of us have this passion and want to turn it into a career, as, as I have. Others have the passion and are working day jobs and would like to incorporate it. And all of us can get burned out when we look at the world uh, from a certain perspective and on certain days, we just feel like, what's the point? Let's let's just forget about the whole the whole deal. So Brad has a lot of answers for us, which we will get to in just a minute. First, though, the Sick to Fit retreat that is happening in North Carolina, June 4th through 7th, is in fact happening in North Carolina through June 4th through 7th. If you'd like to find out more and hang out with me and Josh for a weekend of cooking together, taking walks, 
um, mucking about with animals and exploring on a very deep level um, habit change and community building. Check it out at sicktofit.com slash NC, lowercase NC for North Carolina. Got a couple spots left for coaching. If you'd like to change the trajectory of your health destiny and you'd like my help, it's much cheaper than you think. It's an entire year of coaching, one on one sessions, unlimited. And you can find out all about that at plantyourself.com slash laser. Finally, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone, including people who can't afford to pay anything, and it is supported and funded by those who can. So if you feel aligned with the mission of this show and you'd like to help out, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift, G-I-F-T, all lowercase. All right, let's get to it. Without further ado, Bradley Stahlberg, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Ah, thanks so much for having me back, Howard. It's always a pleasure to chat. Yeah, well, every time you write a great book, I'm going to ask. So uh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's your, put that in your in your risk reward profile when you consider a project. <laughs> that's funny. It's always a pleasure. Oh, cool. So the book we're talking about this time is The Passion Paradox. Um, I had you on last time to talk about your your book with Steve Magnus, Peak Performance, and I was I found this book very challenging. Um, and so maybe we can we can get into uh, some of the ways in which it's it's kind of unsettled me about my own life and how I think about things. But um, first, like, let's let's define our topic. What, what do you mean by passion? Because it's a word that's that's thrown around uh, a lot. And so what what, what are, what's what's our substrate for this, this conversation? A non-romantic passion, though it certainly can be, um, but a much broader passion. So uh, an enthusiasm or zeal for a particular pursuit. And as I said, I think oftentimes that pursuit is thought about as another person. And while that can be the case, the book takes a much more broader scope and view. And that pursuit can also be a job, a community, uh, a cause, a craft, um, as well as a person. Mm -hmm. Great. So, um, you know, and I'm thinking about the, the, my listeners here. And so, like, why why are we having this conversation? And I think there's my listeners might have a couple of different categories of passion, particularly related to the fact that they're listeners of this podcast. One is a bunch of them want, may want to become a professional advocate for our healthy lifestyle, like a la Rich Roll, right? Who? Yeah. Um, like, you know, OK, I got my day job, but I really love what I'm doing and I kind of want to take it to the masses um, or they want to pursue some achievement, whether it's an athletic achievement or it's either for its own sake or to witness for the cause. Like a lot of people I know have been very inspired by the Game Changers movie and want to kind of up their game so that when they're wearing their vegan shirts, the people go, oh, look at look at that person. Um, so what? Um, you know, so th those are the people I'm thinking of in terms in terms of this this discussion. And, the, you know, the big the big question that you sort of talk about is like the difference between passion or the the the, um, the tension between passion and balance. Can you talk a little bit about mm. about that? Sure. So my hunch is that your listeners will have come across a whole bunch of people, products, services, and philosophies 
that tell them that they ought to be finding and following their passion, that that is the key to a good life. And also a bunch of products, services, philosophies, and people telling them that they ought to be balanced. While if passion is the relentless pursuit of something with enthusiasm and zeal, in balance, at least in the way that we talk about it in the 21st century, takes on a tone of equal things in equal proportion with equal amounts of time and energy, those two things are antithetical to each other. At least it certainly seems that way. They're very much at odds with each other. So how can one live a quote-unquote balanced life at the same time as they might want to be extremely passionate about a particular cause or pursuit? What's interesting is where... I came out on this is that balance isn't a bad goal per se, but for somebody that is very passionate, very um, energized by something, forcing themselves to try to be balanced generally just makes them unhappy. They feel like they're resisting from going all in at the thing they want to go all in at. And at the same time, they're probably not doing a great job of being balanced because at that time in their life, they're not wired to be balanced. So rather than trying to be balanced any given day, week, perhaps even any given year, it makes a lot more sense to try to be balanced over the course of a lifetime. And when you take this view, you can have different seasons. And those seasons can be going all in as a parent or a spouse. It can be going all in at a vocation. It can be going all in at a cause. Um, so rather than, again, this equal proportion equal energy, equal time as a day-in and day-out lifestyle, I think an alternative way to live, not necessarily better, but alternative, is to have things that you care about deeply, that you want to go all in on, go all in on those things for periods of time, and then shift as the context of your life changes. Mm. Well, it, it reminds me of kind of the, the, the star of your last book, Peak Performance, which was the growth equation. Right, that, that we can't just yeah, we can't totally. just can't just be be pushing and we can't just be resting, but we don't necessarily have to do them in in sort of like metered oscillation. Exactly, I think it's probably pointing towards a similar truth. I think that what I would say is is the growth equation. So stress plus rest equals growth. That could still very much be focused on one pursuit. So it could be stress plus rest equals growth but I'm only going to apply that to becoming a great advocate for the environment, or I'm mm -hmm. only going to apply that to becoming a, an, an Olympic caliber athlete. What I would say is that you hear balance and I often think, well, you need to be an Olympic caliber athlete, a great advocate for the environment, a good spouse, a good parent, a good community member. You need to make sure that you have time to catch up on Netflix. You need to read 10 books a year, yada, 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 on and on and on. Um, <laughs> So I, the way that I, I think about this juxtaposition is even if you have to rest at whatever you do, if you want to be successful over the long haul, this is more about, well, what are you actually going to do? What are the activities that are going to fill your life? And instead of trying to do 15 things every single day, maybe you think about doing 15 things over the course of your lifetime where you have periods where you're actually only focused on one or two of those things at the same time. Right. But in my experience, like when I am passionate chasing something and I, I seek balance, that the balance destroys the possibility of rest. 
right? Because I'm, mm. I'm I'm not getting the down, you know, the downtime from from training for an ultra marathon is building a business, right. and the downtime from that is you know being really hyper available exactly. for my kids. And so you know, like rest is the, always the thing that gets squeezed out. Exactly, and that's why. And, and that I think you're pointing pointing to this, this truth a hundred percent. That's why I don't necessarily think like stress plus rest and balance are the same thing because to be balanced would actually be to do what you're saying, which is often very little rest. Whereas to have this attitude of, I'm actually going to identify only a few things that matter to me and go all in on them at the same time. Perhaps it's even only one thing. Well, then you have the time and space to actually rest because you're not running around like a crazy person trying to do everything always. Right. And another thing that's, that struck me about this, you know, the issue of, of, of passion is is part of that um, our difficulty with that caused by the paradox of choice that if we were you know I'm, I always try to put things back to like you know hunter gatherers living a very yeah you know sure. basic human existence like there weren't that many things to be passionate about right there was you know the hunting the gathering right. the storytelling the the medicine the painting on the walls and, and like like we have. You know, almost like what we call passion is just making some choices and setting some boundaries. I think so. Uh, I think that it, it's particularly acute right now when there is a culture that says that you you need to be doing all these things to have a quote unquote good life. Um, and that really promotes like a fear of missing out syndrome. Whereas I would argue that actually the key to a good life is in many ways figuring out what's important to you and then simplifying around those things so that you can go all in on those things. Um, it's very different to the, the current ethos, which again is be really, really broad but not deep anywhere. I think that this book is written for the individual that is kind of fed up with that and actually wants to try to go really deep in a few things and isn't so concerned with being super broad. Right. Um, I think that we see this everywhere, right? It's like to make this more philosophical topic very real is just think about a smartphone. You can have 55 apps on a smartphone. And I feel like that's how people are starting to design their entire lives with 55 apps, <laughs> but they're trying to pay attention to everything always and do it in a way where they feel good about themselves and they feel good about what they're contributing to those 55 things, but that's just impossible. There's just not enough time and energy to do that in a way that, uh, that nourishes one's soul or that allows for quality output, to be honest. <laughs> right. And even if I contributed one 55th of the energy to each of those apps, as I would to one thing, the switching costs are probably three times, you know, the energy that I, right, totally. <laughs> A hundred percent spot on. And, and that's why I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy that you're latching on to this is, is the first big theme of the book that resonated with you because I, I've gotten a lot of notes from readers that said, you know, you gave me permission to not care about all these things that I always thought were trivial that people said I need to care about and really do what I want to do. Now, I'm not talking about like neglecting your kids or... <laughs> neglecting, you know, basic physical mental health hygiene. This is more about, oh, you know, I actually don't need to have all those hobbies and I don't need to spend time on social media. Um, 
And I don't need to be a, a great, you know, a great community member at the same time that I'm pursuing this intellectual work or the, the opposite. I don't, if I'm going to be a great community member, I don't need to read these books. And again, if these things aren't set in stone, that there are seasons for these things. Um, I think like for a lot of people, the rubber does meet the road where, you know, it can be about friendship. So if you're, if you're pursuing this master work, whether it's artistic, whether it's building a business, whether it's trying to pee on an ultra marathon, you might not be as good of a friend or even as good of a family member during that period. And that's okay. So long as you maintain self-awareness about it. And so long as you can view it with just enough objectivity to realize when it might be time to switch your priorities. Right. And I think that that's where it helps to have, you know, someone on the outside that you trust to, uh, you know, to kind of pull you back. Right. So, you know, self-awareness is a useful thing, but it only goes so far. <laughs> and when you, when you know, when you, if you're, um, you know, immersed in something to, to the to the exclusion of everything else. Um, I do. I think it's really helpful to have someone else to pull you back. I also think, you know, in the book that, that there are a few of these techniques for self-distancing, which kind of helps you um, do that without even having another person. So an example that I really like is pretend that a friend was in the exact same situation as you and doing the exact same things that you're doing. And what advice would you give that friend? So if that friend is saying, oh, man, like this is the best thing ever. I've been training really hard or I've been trying to write this book. It's been three months. A part of me thinks I should spend a little bit more time playing with my kid, but I just can't because I'm so into this. What would you tell your friend? And maybe at the two-month mark, you might tell your friends, you know, like, give yourself permission. It's okay. Like, keep pushing. But maybe after six months, you might tell your friend, like, all right, like, I actually think that you're going to regret not playing with your kids. So even though it feels hard, you should probably, like, take some time with your family, play with your kid. And then the hard part, of course, is taking the advice that you'd give a friend for yourself. Right, right. Yeah, it, rem it reminds me of, um, like, working with a pendulum to uh, like you hold the string and then you ask questions and you, you know, it either goes like clockwise or counterclockwise or, or back and forth. And it's like, oh, so this is what I think, right? Yeah. That I'm, um, I'm just sort of a like, really, like a, a really, yeah, a really concrete example of, of, of where this is super helpful um, that I use it all the time, both with myself and I with some individuals I work with is if you got an athlete that has an injury and they're like hobbling out the door, limping to go to the gym, their hamstrings tight. And the reason they're doing this is because they feel like, you know, they can't miss this workout. They have to stay on their schedule. If they fall off their routine and miss this workout, something bad will happen. And then you tell them, all right, well, imagine that your training partner, a really close friend has the same sore hamstring is limping out of her apartment going to the gym because, you know, she just can't afford to get off her schedule. What would you tell her? And of course you tell her like, take a day off, take two days off, let that thing heal up. So you only have to take two days off instead of having to take two months off and making it worse. But right. then you actually have to follow that advice and turn around and not go to your training session and then rest and recover. <laughs> right. That's, that's one of my, my cheapest coaching tricks is, I'll ask someone, what would you, what advice would you give me if the roles were reversed right now? <laughs> and then, yep. I, then, and then I don't have to do, do anything. <laughs> Be 
because what these little techniques are doing is it's exactly what you said, like self-awareness, the more emotionally involved in something you are, the more passionate you are, the harder it is to have self-awareness because those emotions run so high that inertia gets so strong. So doing these little mental exercises, what you're actually doing is you're creating a little bit of space between yourself and the situation to allow you to take a more objective view. Right, right. And then, and then the coaching becomes the fear of following the advice that you just gave. Right. Like, like, well, and, and, and I think you just have to do it. Like at that point, I, I think don't ask questions, just do it and trust that you're going to be giving your friend better advice than you give yourself. Right. No, I'm saying once, once you, once you, once you discover, oh, I just told them to take the day off and not go drag their hobbled ass to the gym to damage it some more. Or, and, yeah. And now yeah, I've got to take that advice. One. Or like, I just, I just told them, like, actually, like, work a little bit less, your marriage is more important. Um, mm -hmm. Like then it really gets hard because yeah, yeah. But then you actually have to take the advice, of course. Right. So that you know, that then it comes down to some sort of emotional courage to be able because there's a moment that's going to happen when you're like, OK, here I am at my office. It's seven o'clock at night. I really want to get three more social media posts done. And I'm scared of what will happen if I don't. And like, that's the moment at which yep. the rubber has to meet the road. Yep. And, and, and I, I wish that we would have had a subsection in that chapter called boundaries, not balance, mm. because I think that if you have that boundary, whether it's 7 p.m. or 6 p.m. or whatever that boundary is, it makes it a lot easier because then you can just execute. When that moment comes and you have that emotional fear, you say, okay, like, here's fear, but I have this boundary. When I made the boundary, I was not in an emotional state, so I'm going to trust that it was the right thing to do and just execute. I love that. I love that. That's a, that's a phraseology that I'm totally going to steal. And, uh... Well, you're pointing me towards it. Um, but the more of it I think about this and, and talk about it, I, I, because, again, like the, the answer isn't like, oh, follow your passion to the exclusion of all else, even if it ruins your marriage, takes you away from your kid, injures you and results in burnout. That's not the message at all. It's just that the message isn't like try to be perfect to everyone always. It's actually identify the things that you're really passionate about right now. It can be one. It can be two. It can be three. Those are arbitrary numbers. I think once you get above three things to really push for at the same time, it gets hard. And then set some boundaries so that you don't completely leave behind the rest of your life and reevaluate every few months to make sure that that's still how you want to be spending your time and energy. Great. Great. So the, the second big aha for me in, in reading The Passion Paradox was it was it was so obvious once you said it right like like all great ideas that everyone talks about finding your passion but for a lot of people the problem starts once you find your passion then like finding your passion is like finding a uh, a hand grenade right <laughs> like you, you know there's ways in which it, it could be very harmful to you to to have to to live with this passion and so most of the book is is about advice about okay so you found your passion or you've chosen your passion how do you live with it in a way that uh, makes your life better, not worse? Um, so what? How, Correct. how did you is, is that what you initially wanted to write when you wrote the book? Like, was that the 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 key insight that you had that was missing? 
No, I actually think for myself, it was more that question around balance and boundaries and why I personally often feel like an inability to be content and why I want to keep pushing. And is that good? Is that bad? Is it just something that is? Um, and then this, this insight was more secondary, but I think that like they're tied at the hip and, 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 and I'll explain that's because there's certain times when pushing with boundaries, as we just discussed, is really healthy and nourishing and fulfilling. And then there are times when pushing with boundaries isn't very nourishing and fulfilling. And, and the difference is what, what researchers call the difference between harmonious passion and obsessive passion. And this is, this is a big part of the book. So harmonious passion is when you spend a lot of time, effort, and energy doing something because you love the activity itself. You love how it makes you feel. You love the, the path of mastery that you're on. It's very much internally rewarding and fulfilling. Obsessive passion is when you love an activity and you give it energy and attention because you love the external validation that you get from doing it. Mm-hmm. So this is the example between loving the training process and racing versus loving getting to talk about how good of a runner you are or loving the fact that you might win a race or get to post your times on social media or on Strava. This is the difference between building a business because you love the teamwork and collaboration and creativity and building a business versus building a business because you want to get covered by your local newspaper or because you want to reach a certain amount of money or status or fame. Uh, This is the difference between writing a book because you love writing or writing a book because you want to get on the bestseller list. Um, This is challenging because it's human nature to seek and to want that validation. We're very much social creatures. It helped in our evolution to be validated. The issue is that when everything becomes about external validation, you end up having a pretty crazy emotional roller coaster uh, because suddenly the things that you care deeply about are outside of your control, whether or not someone buys your book, whether or not your business succeeds, obviously there are things in your control about those processes, but there's also a lot that's not. Um, so the literature shows that harmonious passion, doing something because you love it is associated with peak performance, life satisfaction and overall well-being. Whereas obsessive passion, doing something because you love the external validation that you get from it, is associated with burnout, anxiety, depression, and cheating. And the easiest example of obsessive passion is the athlete that dopes. So the athlete that it becomes so important for him or her to win and to be the man or to be the woman and and to be like the big shot, that once their performance starts suffering they have so much distress because their identity, their worth, everything is so connected to that external result that they start cheating to close the gap. Um, Lance Armstrong is a, a really good example of somebody who succumbed to this. And then in the business world, Elizabeth Holmes, who was the founder behind Theranos, um, is another really good example of someone who became more passionate about the spotlight than the actual activity and it, when when they would have lost the spotlight, they cheated so that they could stay in it. 
Yeah, and it was interesting to read about, you know, Elizabeth Holmes um, and Jeffrey Skilling, whom you wrote about, and to think about Lance Armstrong, right? Like the, the it would be really interesting to be in their heads at the first moment of the tiniest little transgression, because I'm sure none of them started out like with, you know, the, with these giant nefarious schemes in their heads, that it was all like this tiny little slippery slope. At a, at a point where the, yeah, the totally. risk reward ratio seemed, you know, it, it seemed like a very benign little line to cross. Absolutely. Because, again, your self-worth is getting so much like it's getting so tied to your results that you actually become a little bit delusional. And like they're probably t- I mean, to this day, Lance Armstrong and Elizabeth Holmes tell themselves the story that what they did was not wrong and that they didn't cheat. Um. There's some really interesting research in the book that shows that um, if you look at the the brain of somebody that is struggling with an eating disorder, and you look at the brain of someone that's really, really, really passionate, what you see is actually activity in the exact same brain region. They, they look very similar, and that's because the, the person with an eating disorder, that behavior and in, in that syndrome of behaviors is characterized by delusion. They look in the mirror and they don't see somebody that is gaunt and skinny and they see somebody that is fat. And the passionate person, they look out at the world and they don't see that 99.9% of startups fail or they don't see that only one in a million people ever make it to the Olympics. They see their potential success. So there's a little bit of delusion that comes with passion and the more that the passion becomes for external validation, the more of it, the delusion is going to carry over into that realm. Mm -hmm. So like, like the the delusion itself is sort of neutral. Like, you know, we've heard stories of people. It's it's really helpful. You have to be like to be in Dan Kahneman, who's arguably like the most brilliant behavioral scientist to ever live. um, He won a Nobel prize. He talks about like how in order to be a founder or an entrepreneur, you have to be a delusional optimist (laughs) because otherwise no one would ever do it (laughs) because the odds are so stacked against you. Now, again, the problem becomes when that delusion then spreads over into the, the result of what you're doing. So like you start failing and then the delusion becomes, Oh, I didn't actually fail. Like, I just need to cheat, and then it'll be fine. But I don't even see that as cheating. Um, so it, it's really about being super intentional about where you direct your passion. And at any given point in time, is the lion's share of your drive and passion more harmonious because you love the activity, or is it more focused on the external validation that you get from doing it? And like I said, this is not an all or nothing thing. I think that we're all on spectrums and I think that those spectrums change at different points of our lives. The key is just to be able to identify when you're starting to get a little bit too obsessive, a little bit too externally focused, and then take action to course correct. Right. So when I think about myself, you know, I'm, I'm usually I can usually tell when I'm enjoying myself or when I'm stressed when I'm being a a fundamentally good and kind person and when I'm being like short and judgmental and snippy, is is that the sort of thing I'm looking for when I'm sort of checking in? Like, 
you know, is like is pa is passion is good passion or you passion or harmonious passion typically accompanied by positive inner states or or can it also like is that a red herring? No, I think that that's a, I mean I think that that's a pretty especially at first I think that's a good way to think about it. Um, I think that there's a different the way that I like to talk about this is there's a different texture to harmonious passion and obsessive passion. So harmonious passion, at the end of the day, you tend to feel pretty good and like satiated and content. And with obsessive passion at the end of the day, you often feel like there's a craving or a kind of emptiness. Um, so again, to, to, to give a concrete example, if you're a creative or you're building a business, which to me is a very creative thing to do, I, I shouldn't even delineate, and you spend the day actually working on that thing, you'll probably feel like pretty content at night. Mm. Whereas if instead you spend the day looking at your metrics, trying to check your social media posts to see if people are viewing them, obsessively checking how many customers you had, odds are at the end of that day, you probably won't feel very good. You'll probably feel like a little bit gross and maybe like a longing for more, but you won't feel very content. So to me, that's kind of the first warning sign is are you spending your time doing the thing or kind of obsessing about the result of the thing? And then you can generally, as you said, track that to an internal state where when you're doing the thing, you tend to feel good when you're obsessively checking, thinking, monitoring the thing, craving validation for the thing, you tend to feel not as good. And again, this is, this is empirically documented that harmonious passion is associated with um, overall well-being and life satisfaction and, and, and feelings of flow, whereas obsessive passion is associated with feelings of anxiety, depression, and burnout. Gotcha. Uh, so here's... And, and, and any, anyone, anyone who's got sucked down the rabbit hole of checking how well their social media posts do or like spending a whole day analyzing themselves on dashboards of what kind, like everyone is familiar with the fact that that doesn't make you feel very good. Right. Well, uh, I'll uh, push back on that a little bit, because like when I first started um, in business, you know, one of the things that I learned was to do experiments and see how they go. So I think it was the attitude that I brought to the dashboard or you know, the the how many clicks on the email, what the conversion rate was that when I looked at it as here's an experiment and how can I be creative to improve upon it next time that felt very different than is my worth somehow tied up in the results right. of this uh, campaign. Right. And, and, and I think in the former, when you run the experiment, you probably have no time checking those results like once or twice a day. Right. <laughs> it's an experiment. Whereas when it's the latter, though, that's when you get, and, and I say you, this happens to me, this happens to everyone. That's when you get in a cycle of like constantly refreshing, checking 50 times a day um, because your self-worth is bound up in that. And it's not just like a, a, a judgment neutral experiment. Right, right. Um, so something I'm confused about a little bit, you mentioned uh, in, in connection with harmonious passion, the word content and contentment a couple of times. But like the, the protagonist of your book seems to me to be dopamine. And I love how I love how you, you know, you ground all of the research in this kind of evolutionary understanding of the 
the purpose of dopamine. And basically, the purpose of dopamine is to cons- is to make us uncon- discontent all the time. Can you talk Correct. a little bit always about looking, that? And, and, always looking ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So we evolved that way, um, as you know, and, and that's because when our species was first evolving, we evolved in a universe of scarcity. And if we ever got content with what we had, then the next famine could hit and we would die. So the Homo sapiens that survived and passed down their DNA were those that were probably pretty driven by dopamine, the neurochemical that's constantly making you look down the road, strive for more, think about what's next. Um, From an evolutionary perspective, it was very, very helpful for the reasons that I just explained. From a living your life perspective, it kind of can take you out of the present moment. So I think that harmonious passion is the bridge that allows you to still be dopamine dependent and to not deny your biology, but to live a fulfilling life in the present moment because you're allowing that dopamine and that striving to help you get absorbed in activities that you love. And then when you're absorbed in those endeavors and those pursuits, you are present, you become present. So rather than try to think about presence as leaving everything behind, going on retreat, living in the monastery and observing your thoughts, it is throwing yourselves into the things that matter and then becoming so absorbed in them that you really can't think ahead because you're so in, in the process of what you're doing. I love that. And I, and I, and it's now that's, that's making a lot more sense to me. And also in the context of your Twitter feed, which you, you often talk about like the tension between future goals and present action. Yeah. And, and again, like I write this book, I wrote for myself, Everything I I write, not everything, but 99% of things I write, like I have skin in the game too. I I haven't figured this stuff out. I'm writing to try to figure it out. And I think that that is, that's a really big tension is being present and then wanting to strive and push towards things. And again, I think harmonious passion is the best way I've come across yet that allows you to reconcile those two things. Um, It's not to say that the value of the meditation or the meditation retreat isn't there. Perhaps the value of that is helping you get really clear on, well, well, what are the things that you want to throw yourself into? What are your values that you want to, you want to strive towards? But then it's actually to give yourself permission to go strive towards those things. Right. Gotcha. Um, So one of the things I found very interesting and, and, and complex was the relationship between passion and addiction in terms of our physiology, yeah. in terms of, I think you call it like dopamine insensitivity. Can you explain that? Yeah. To us? So the, the easiest way to explain it is, again, from an evolutionary perspective, um, we evolved to crave the chase more than the reward. And again, this is because if you're a hunter-gatherer and you're hunting, and once you get the kill, you're just like super content, you might never hunt again because like you've arrived, right? Like I got the right. kill. Right. And then all of a sudden next year when winter comes, you're screwed because you have no food. So what for most people tends to be the the, the, the kind of part of anything that draws them back is it's actually the chase. It's not so much killing the, the, the kill or the win, but it's the pursuit. 
And that's what makes us tick, and, and that's where we find joy, and that's what energizes us. Um, the same thing, like our biology is the same, whether our pursuit is the most productive thing possible. So our pursuit might be like stopping climate change, or our pursuit might be scoring the next hit of cocaine or heroin. Um, but the biology is the same. So like in stopping climate change, you know, we get involved in activism, we put together a big program and we get some legislation passed. We're probably content for about three minutes and then we're thinking, all right, what's next? Hmm. Whereas the drug addict is looking for their next score, their next hit. They find it, they get high, they probably feel good for a little while. And then they're immediately thinking about their next hit and their next score. Um, there's actually research done by the, the neuroscientist um, Mark Lewis. He's got a great book called Biology of Desire that, that is cited a couple of times in, in The Passion Paradox. And he talks about how like most drug addicts, it's not actually the high that they love and that they get addicted to, it's the chase. And the high just becomes a part of that. And again, I think for any driven, productive person in ways that society thinks is meaningful, very few of them say that, oh, the reason I do this is because it felt so good to just experience the joy of the accomplishment. No way. They tell you about the journey, the people that they met along the way, um, the energy that they got doing the thing. And that's why we keep doing the thing. Um, and that goes all the way back to, to, to our ancestors and our hardwiring, which is very much to be energized by the chase of meaningful things, much, much more so than the accomplishment of them. I see. Well, so so I mean, one problem and a big difference between addiction and, you know, cocaine and climate change is that we live in a society that has made attainment ridiculously easy for for lots of things, whether it's, you know, sugar or brain altering chemicals or you know, video games or just driving instead of having to walk and climb things that the things that that, um, that we put passion into are, are still hard. Right. Like is, is like I'm, I think I'm that's the whole point, because because like, again, like if, if, if one operates on a theory that our biology is one that finds gratification and striving towards meaningful goals, then the things that are easy, the video games, the buying shit, the, um, the addictive drugs, like you're just always going to want to come back for more. And, and, and then you're just in this cycle where, all right, I play video games. I miss them. I play more. I accomplish something. I play more. Um, and that to me, that feels like a very kind of narrowing cycle. That does not feel nearly as open spaciousness invigorating is pursuing like a big, hairy, hard, challenging goal that takes a lot longer, if ever, to achieve. Right. And, and I think about, you know, you, you have three, three or four pages about Rich Roll, or a mutual friend. Yep. And like when yep. he just when he describes his life of, of alcoholism or food addiction, you can tell that he's kind of bored with it. Like even while he's doing it, even while he's uh, a puppet, at the hands of these substances, yep. he's like, this is not a life. But, but he takes this, you take the same energy and you put it into something that like, you know, I've seen his photos of his uh, bicycle falls or, you know, having to run the 26 miles on the last marathon of his five day thing. Like you go like, like, yeah. that's really hard. Like that, that ended up 
sort of energizing him in a much more powerful way because it was hard. Yeah. Another way um, that can be helpful to think about it, and, and this is an analogy I've just started using when I, when I get this question, is peanut M&Ms and brown rice. <laughs> so whenever you've got peanut M&Ms next to brown rice, you're always going to choose the peanut M&Ms. So let's say that that is the pursuit of a meaningful goal like activism or transforming your mind and body versus playing video games or doing cocaine. So cocaine and video games are always going to taste better in that moment. But if you spend an entire day, week, month, year, or decade just eating peanut M&Ms, eventually you're going to start to feel like shit. Whereas if you start eating brown rice, and you spend an entire month, day, year, decade eating brown rice, you'll actually feel pretty good. So for so many people, it's having the awareness not to eat the peanut M&M and to eat the brown rice. And if you eat brown rice for long enough, it's not that you'll never want peanut M&Ms, but you'll kind of know that, hey, like, I only want one or two of these right now because if I keep eating them, I'll feel great right now, but the next morning I'll wake up and feel like shit. Now, obviously, in addiction, some people reach a point where they cannot have one peanut M&M because their mind-body will latch onto that and they'll just want more of it. But I think for most people, again, it's not all or nothing, but it's coming to viscerally feel in your body the difference between a life where you're just going from one peanut M&M to the next versus a life where you're eating brown rice. Um, the analogy being one is kind of junk food, makes you feel like shit. The other doesn't taste as good in the moment, but is much more nourishing and makes you feel much better over the long haul. Right. And you can get, you know, if we're talking literally about peanut M&Ms and brown rice, that if when you're eating peanut M&Ms, it's resetting your uh, your taste buds so that the brown rice gets even harder. Right. So it's almost like, you know, eliminating the peanut M&Ms at a certain like if we never tasted you know, peanut M&Ms, then apples would be pretty amazing. <laughs> totally. Right. If we, never had, if, if we never had social media on our smartphones, then the person across from us in conversation would be pretty amazing. <laughs> you right. know, it's the same thing. <laughs> right. Like I'm trying um, to imagine the... the but I think it's, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the, the first, no, the first human who... It, it, yeah. The first human who ate brown rice must have been like, oh, my God, it's cooked. It's amazing. This is like the most calories I've right. ever had at one time. Right. Um, yeah. So, so much of that is just like identifying like the brown rice versus the peanut M&Ms. And then where the peanut M&Ms have too great a hold of, over you or your taste buds are so far reset. It's, you know, in the case of addiction, it's, it's seeking help to, to have someone there to help you reset them. In the case of maybe not extreme um, dependencies or not as extreme or harmful dependencies, it's just gradually kind of reshifting towards the thing that's ultimately going to make you feel better in the long run. And sometimes that requires like staunch boundaries. I don't have any anything on my phone outside of um, the telephone, uh, an app for listening to music, an app for listening to podcasts, and a stopwatch. I don't have the internet on my phone. I don't have email. I don't have, oh, and I have text messages, excuse me. But I don't have any social media. I don't have email. I don't have the internet because that candy 
had way too strong an effect on me. That's like, um, I am a total sucker for um, potato chips. And if I had potato chips in the house, I would just eat potato chips. So like, I know that I don't have potato chips in the house. So why would I have potato chips on my phone? Um, and, and, and getting back to the, you know, I, we're, we're, it feels like we're meandering off, but I actually don't think we are. Getting back to passion and harmonious and obsessive passion, like the more that you put those external kind of dopamine validators around you, the more your passion is going to be obsessive. So the more that you can design your environment in a way that facilitates the good, harmonious kind of passion, the better. Um, another example of that would be if, 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 if there was a way to make it so that whenever you share something on social media, you don't see how many people like it, comment on it, retweet it. And you can only check that once a month because then you can actually use it like data, right. To run an experiment, but it doesn't become this thing that you're craving every day. Mm-hmm. Well, then what ends up happening is you spend a lot less time checking that a lot more time, actually crafting the messages, doing the work, you end up a lot happier and your self-worth isn't tied to what others think. Right. And then getting back to that earlier research that you'll probably, you know, if you're doing it for its own sake, you're probably going to end up coming up with better messages and being more successful than someone who is constantly trying to game the algorithm. Exactly. So I have another question about like the the comparison of, uh, you know, let's say climate change and cocaine. Um, So I'm thinking about a lot of activists I know who I think their intentions are really good. And yet on another on some other uh, continuum, they are totally in the realm of external validation. Like they're they become, you know, embittered. I, I know a guy who's like a bigwig in the trauma world there, you know, who like literally traumatizes everyone he knows. Um, <laughs> right. Like, so. so here's what I'd say. I, yeah, I think that like, all right, there's, it's so funny. I had this conversation with somebody that is like one of the biggest wigs in, um, like the media with a particular passion around climate change and progressive causes. And, this person, they challenge me that it doesn't matter if your passion is obsessive or harmonious, as long as it's pointed towards worthy ends, like screw it. And I said, that's true for the world, but for your own sanity and health and happiness, you'd still rather it be harmonious. So maybe it's almost like this three-part framework. The worst possible thing is to have obsessive passion pointed towards something that sucks. then a middle ground is okay my passion's obsessive i really care about being famous in the field and having everyone love me and having everyone cite my work but hey like at least i'm i i'm aware of this about myself and at least i'm using it to like help advance research on trauma or like to help push you know a more sustainable future for the planet forward and then the best is to say I'm pushing for a more sustainable future of the planet or helping people heal from trauma. And I'm doing it out of a place of love and freedom and harmonious passion, not obsessive passion. Right. And I think that anyone that says that they'd rather be doing it from a place of obsessive passion, I don't think they've tasted harmonious passion um, or they just don't want to. 
But you're right. Like, to your friend that's a big winning trauma, as long as he's, like, helping the field and helping people, that's great. Like, keep doing the work. But I bet deep down inside he wishes that he could be a little bit more free as he's doing it. Um, another way to put it, or excuse me, another way to put it is, like, uh, it's a concept that I know that you've discussed on your show before. It's the difference between being in flow and not. Like, who wouldn't want to be in flow? And when you're in flow, like self-referential thinking goes away. Like you're like by definition, when you're in flow, you're not focused on your ego because you're just absorbed with what you're doing. So the more that you can be in flow, great. Now the number one thing that takes you out of flow is suddenly starting to care about what other people think. Did I succeed or did I fail? What's my status? Yada, yada, yada. Right. Right. And you know, as, as a coach, that's that's such a fine line between like, I want to help this person. But as a professional, I can't need their approval. Like the minute I need my client's approval, I suck as a coach. Right. Well, even at yeah. the same time as I like, like me being in flow is totally it's not it's not self-referential at all. It's entirely experiential with this other person. But but and I have to constantly catch myself because I'm a human being that I want this person to like me. Bingo. And nobody's immune. And, and like, that's something that, um, that I write in the book and I write in every single like essay that I've written on this topic. The, the goal is to be like 51% harmonious passion, 49% obsessive. <laughs> Just have the majority be harmonious most of the time. And then like you're good enough. And over time, the mind-body system will realize that it feels better to be in flow than not to be in flow. And very gradually, you'll start spending more and more time in flow. Right. And I, and I think there's, some, there's something, and I'm probably wandering a little bit into metaphysics here, about, you know, it's funny you talk about climate change. So I had a guest on the podcast, um, Charles Eisenstein, who wrote a book called Climate, A New Story, in which he argued that even if climate change is the biggest issue facing the world, if we approach it with the same mentality that created it of domination, of making other people wrong, of going to war yeah. against climate change, that we're actually fostering the very energy that led us to this place in the first place. And that there's actually something the world needs that you know, he would rather us like do teeny little things with care than be you know, climate activists who are only about results. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really valid argument and an interesting argument. I'm not like a huge climate activist. It's not my area of expertise. I can say this, nothing annoys me more than the uber progressive person that is a, such a quote unquote activist, but like drives an SUV and doesn't like doesn't do anything on a day-to-day -day basis to to actually like promote the effort it's almost like they don't have skin in the game i don't think they're exclusive i think the best way to do it is to to, to both try to influence on a macro level and then take micro actions i do think that the more micro actions you take the more the macro stuff will end up coming from like a place of openness and love but um, I think that your 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 colleague that you had in the podcast is dead on. I think like if, if climate change is approached from a you know power authority, you must do this standpoint. It probably like I don't think we're going to make as much progress if it was approached more from a place of um, a place of love. Right. Gotcha. So um, 
The last thing I'm really curious about is, as I was reading this, I felt challenged personally. And, and, and the, the narrative that was going through my head is, I guess I'm not that passionate. <laughs> like, and, and I know that's not exactly true. Like, I really care deeply about things. But let's say like when you were writing about writing, about like Brad has to write. He has to write every day. That's how he knows his like I write books and I don't feel like I have to write like I have to force myself. So what do you do when you're passionate about um, the cause or the big picture, but not a bunch of the steps that are required of you to accomplish it? Uh, that's a good question. I think that you have to figure out like what are what are the steps that help you achieve that goal, and what are the ones that you are most that you enjoy most, and then do those steps. So perhaps you like having this podcast a lot more than writing. Great, I wouldn't judge yourself. Then have the podcast. Perhaps there's a time when you you decide that actually what you like is like showing up to city council meetings and talking about these things. Great, then do that. Um, I don't think that it has to be like any one venue if the passion is the cause. Mm. We're fortunate. We live in a, a day and an age where there are so many different ways to approach a cause. Um, and again, I think that like this stuff changes. There are different seasons in your life. Like when I was writing that book, um, I didn't have a child. Now I have a kid. He's two years old. There are days that I don't write and I feel just fine because the reason I don't write is because something came up with my son. Mm. Um, so I, I think that it, again, like context matters, um, the, the season of one's life matters, and the passion can change. Um, I think it's more just about like constantly asking that question, like what's actually important in my life? How can I cut out the bullshit? How can I not worry about being balanced? And then what can I do to work in service of what's important to me in a way where I'm giving it my all? And that might be writing, that might be parenting, that might be being a community member, um, that might be playing video games, if that's what your value is. I, like, I try to be pretty values neutral, as long as you're not hurting someone else. I think the bigger issue is so many people go through life on autopilot, not even really knowing what their values are, hmm. being pushed and pulled by everything that's happening around them. Yeah, I, th I think I just got an insight into myself as you were speaking, which is uh, I'm cl I clearly have the passion around these topics. What I think gets in my way is a fear of originality. Like I want to oh, copy someone else's model like, oh, so that's how Rich Roll did it. Well, he's got a better podcast than me, so I'll just do what he did. <laughs> and, it, and it turns out to be a completely poor fit for me or well, I'm a writer, so I have to write books. When I actually I really like writing like 3000 word essays. And I think there's a lot of ways in which I, I let some shoulds of identity get in the way because yeah. I feel like, well, if, if I'm just having fun and being joyful and being like totally harmoniously passionate, I almost feel guilty. No, but so here's the thing, like, don't don't shit on yourself, as my therapist would say. I love <laughs> that. Right. Don't shit on yourself. Don't shit on yourself. Um, and like there are some very pragmatic things. So like people have to make a living to be able to afford to put a roof on their head and to have their basic needs met. And sometimes you have to do things that you don't like in order to do that. But once those basic needs are met, then 
it's so important to say, well, what, like, what do I actually enjoy? Because the things that you, I mean, you, I think you said these words exactly earlier in the podcast, like the things that you enjoy, you're going to be better at. Yeah. So might as well, might as well point your energy towards those things um, and not worry about it. And then if what you enjoy is something that someone else has done, like there is no, like, don't reinvent the wheel, follow what ritual did. It might work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you, you see, cause you read my book, like each of my books have 200 sources. I am totally copying what other people did. I'm just making sure I give them credit. Like that's the creative process <laughs> right. um, in many ways. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel that all the time. And, and, and again, it's not to say that like something that I struggle with right now in my next project is, geez, like, am I just quoting way too many other people and other experts? Um, and that's probably just my ego talking. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, with without you, a lot of them would be languishing in some sort of obscurity. Yeah, right. maybe or maybe creativity is actually just about like I, I, I there are some good definitions of creativity that are like you're taking things that already exist and putting them together in new ways. Right. Um, well, if you're if you're not if you're I, not the I, creator of the universe, then that's pretty much what you've got to do. Right. Right. I was I'm so glad you said that. I was just thinking that. So it's interesting, though, like how our egos can get in the way of that um, and make us like, again, what's the definition of ego? like such a manifestation of ego is like, oh, you need to be the creator of the universe and create this new knowledge. Like, no, that's just ego getting in the way. Um, but like that can be a pretty strong force. I mean, I dealt with it earlier this morning when I was trying to figure out literally I was asking myself that question. Am I relying on other experts too much? Um and ultimately, my answer was like, nope, like, I don't think so, actually, because I think the way that I'm piecing this together will be new and a contribution. Um, and at the very least, like, hopefully it will reach people that otherwise wouldn't have come across this stuff. Right. And doing and doing your um, your your give advice to a friend trick. You know, I would tell you, like, if you if you enjoy reading all this stuff and see connections, then that's absolutely the right thing to be doing. Yeah. Totally. I appreciate it. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, so if people want to uh, follow you, you write essays all the time. I know you have you have uh, a new uh, I don't know how new uh, the, a website where, where I don't have to keep going to like Outside Magazine and all these other sources where I can just find your stuff. Tell people how they can find you and follow you and, and give you money. Um, so. So give me money. Here's no. Here's my college, uh, my kids' five twenty nine college fund. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, the best way to learn more about these things and, and to support me is to buy the books, and they're not expensive, and they are the deepest dives on the things that I think about. And more than the ten to twenty bucks you spend, um, it's about just like carrying on this conversation and lifting it off the page. Uh, and then the second best way to learn more about these ideas is on the internet, which can be a big and terrifying place. Um, I do my best to carve out a, a little intellectually stimulating, interesting niche on Twitter at B Stolberg. And then my co-author, who is a collaborator with me on many of these ideas, and I, um, to your point, just launched a new website that is the growth equation, www.thegrowtheq.com, um, where we're trying to house all of our work. Excellent. 
Okay, and the two books are The Passion Paradox and Peak Performance. And yeah. and I'll include links to everything in the show notes. And two more quick questions before you go. Um, one is, what, what are you working on now? I am working on um, putting together the outline for my next book project, um, which is very much exploring... Um, how people think about success and the various ways to define success and how the ways that we think about success shapes our mental health and physical well-being. Ooh, I like that. Um, and I, can, I can see how that's an outgrowth of, of this book, which I can see has an, as an outgrowth yeah. of your performance. Yeah, they're all they're all related in their own way. I mean, ultimately, I'm interested in like, what does it mean to live a good life? How can we do that? And how can we do it with compassion for each other along the way? Right. And I find your your tweets to be very, very grounding. Um, so it's what you know, it's one it's one of the few sources of nourishment on the Internet that I can sort of dip into for a couple of minutes, remind myself. So you're. Um, your tweets are very gyroscopic for me. And, uh, and, and so I recommend if, if people do the Twitter thing to, uh, to follow you and, and check out what you're up to. Thanks. You know, it's, it's, I, I get that um, more frequently than I expect. And, and I think it's because I don't treat Twitter as a way to just like gain quote unquote followers. Um, for me, it's a chance to test ideas and to get reactions to them that then can become um, explored in more detail in my books. So like Twitter is the first place I go when I want to test a concept or an idea, or even when I want to test like a, a, a way I write something, a phrase. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm glad that, that it's useful. And back to what you said, I think the couple of times, because I'm just as human as, as the next person, I've gotten sucked into like, how can I grow my follower count? Let me tweet things that are going to get, get more <laughs> followers. Um, a, I never feel as good at the end of those stretches and B those tend not to do as well. Um, so I want, yeah, you know, imagine if people truly said how they felt on Twitter and not like their like angry ego, but deep down inside, I, I bet Twitter would be a lot better place for everyone. Oh, yeah. I might, I might even spend more time there. Um, so yeah, I, don't do that. <laughs> so, um, my last question, um, this is one of these cheesy questions that I've just started asking, like every guest at the end, just because I'm, I'm having so much fun doing it. Is there any um, music that is really meaningful, important, delightful to you that you think most people don't know about? Yes. Oh, man. Great, great question. Um, an album called A Real Good Kid by an artist named Mike Posner. Cool. And then the, I, I love music, so I, I can give you more. The, um, another artist that I am obsessed with is Sarah Bareilles. She's more well-known, but I uh -huh. think she's like the best lit living songwriter singer right now. And her most recent album is called Amidst the Chaos. All right. <laughs> I didn't, now I know how to pronounce her name. Yeah, and in the off chance that Sarah is listening to this podcast, um, Sarah, your music's great. I mean, she's like a celebrity. It'd be pretty cool if she's listening to your podcast. But mm, yeah, if, her stuff is just incredible. It's what we do. We do um, retreats where we take people and, and kind of work on their health, but we really are working on very deep levels. And um, her song, Brave, 
is always one of the anthems oh, that we we just get up and dance to and and with a lot of lot of lot of smiles and tears so sarah if you are listening to this you got some fanboys here <laughs> thanks so much for having me howard oh thank you brad i look forward to seeing the next book and uh and, and staying in touch so thanks again all right. I hope you were as inspired and educated about passion and how to harness it for a good life as I was by this episode. If you enjoyed it and you'd like to support the mission of the show, the easiest way is to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called these days or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcast. Um, for more information about the Sick to Fit retreats, you can just go to sicktofit.com slash retreats or just go to Sick to Fit. And there's a big button that says retreats, and you could find the one that would fit your timeline and your budget and your interests. So if you haven't been following the podcast religiously, you might be surprised to find out that I've doubled the number of episodes produced in a week from one to two. On Friday, I'm doing Friday Fertilizer, Plant Yourself Fertilizer. And those are my essays, articles that I am reading in a beautiful stentorian voice so that you can listen to them rather than having to read all those words. And this past week was uh, inspired by Valentine's Day. It's called Love at First Sight. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that, that would be at plantyourself.com slash 367. This podcast is plantyourself.com slash 368, where you can find uh, the introduction and links to the stuff that we talked about here today. Not much garden news yet, still pouring over catalogs and considering which seedlings to start. Uh, we're going to be herb heavy this year or herb heavy, if you prefer. In running news, um, did six miles this morning slowly, really spending about as much time stretching and foam rolling and taking care of myself as I do running. And so since I don't have unlimited time, the running has been cut back. I'm doing strength training as well. And all of that is to get me in the kind of shape where long runs are, are, are helpful for me rather than kind of breaking me down. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don the Dance of Peace. Check out willridenour.com for more. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathaway, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jamblin, Kanafi, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldon, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gillis, Sarah David Donahue, Blair Stabra, Tarona Vizov, Joanne Carolyn, Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funder, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, The Equally Mysterious Tracy Z. Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Van Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, of Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobles, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzanwak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Kyron Jensen, Cheryl Lakoski, Plant Power for Health. 
Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Natalie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis, Dar- Dennis Burr, Darby Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leedon, Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Cartz, Bill and Bishop, Bill Briel, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Moulton. Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sarah Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, and Karen Schmidt for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. See you on Friday for a Friday Fertilizer. As always, be well, my friends. So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Let other people know about it. Give us some stars. Give us some love. And that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh, who you think would benefit. Send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join arms and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show and it's free for everyone and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. All right. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mauro, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barnes, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filikonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Assert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argitati, Jody Friesner, with Ann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harpers and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon, Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzawak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leland, Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Cartz, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. 
That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends.